The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Our reading this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 2 beginning in verse 24. Rise up and set out on your journey and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Ketamoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, and he and all his people to battle at Jehaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all of his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Arior, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the lands of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Then we turned and went up to the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all of his people, to battle at Edri. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him. For I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivors left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities. The whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very small unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. 
but all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. And so we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians called Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites called it Sinir. All the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Selakah and Edri, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here. We are delighted to have you with us this morning. Just want to add my welcome to Chad's and say we are glad you're here, especially if you're visiting with us or our guests. Welcome. We are glad to have you this morning. We are continuing our study in Deuteronomy this morning. I know a number of you were praying for me a few weeks ago when I came down with COVID and I had to ask Brian to pinch hit for me at the last minute. And as I was preparing this week to preach on this text, I thought, I wonder if I could get COVID again. Like I, I really hate that I wasted my get out of jail free card uh, a couple weeks ago. I, you, perhaps you thought it as Chad was reading the passage, what in the world is he gonna do with this? What in the world is he going to do with this? I mean, this is the type of passage that when I was in college ministry, students would bring this up and they would say, see, this is why I can't, this is why I can't believe in God. This is the type of passage that caused an early heretic named Marcion to say there are two gods in the Bible. There's the vengeful God of Israel and there's Jesus, the God of love. And if we're honest, can't we sympathize with that reaction, at least initially? I mean, did you catch verse 34 of chapter 2? We devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. You can see the temptation to say, yeah, I think I'm just here for the Jesus part of the Bible. I think that's the part that I want. But then we run into a problem, don't we? Because Jesus was the one that said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That law and the prophets language that Jesus uses there is a rabbi shorthand for the Old Testament. And Jesus didn't just say that kind of thing once. In John 10, he says, the scriptures cannot be broken. In Luke 24, after he rose again from the dead, he encounters two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, another shorthand for the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the scriptures, Jesus says, says, point to him which means even this one. So what do we do with that? And how do we do it in a 20-minute communion homily? Well, we're gonna try. We are gonna try and wrestle together with this text. You can see how we have divided it 
uh, in your bulletin there this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the fact that God delivers victory for his covenant people. See that in verses uh, 24 through 25 of chapter 2. And then we'll see God delivers judgment on unrelenting evildoers. We will spend the majority of our time unpacking that this morning in verses 26 through 311. What we're going to see this morning is that what God does with people who finally listen and obey him, when his covenant people finally turn and even just one time listen to him and obey him. And we're going to see also what he does with those so committed to evil that they finally exhaust his patience. So as we dive into the text, let me pray and we will ask God to bless our time sending his Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, you have promised that when your word goes out, it will not return to you void. That it accomplishes every purpose that you have for it. And I confess this morning that I have no idea what that is for us. But I pray that you would keep your promise. Would you accomplish your purposes among us this morning? Would you give us ears to hear? Hearts that long to know you. Jesus, you said that you are our good shepherd and that your sheep know your voice. And so I pray you would help us to hear it and to know it this morning and to follow it. Pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, we look first of all at verses 24 and 25 where we see that God delivers victory for his covenant people. Uh, As we begin to wrestle with this passage, we need to see, first of all, what God does with his people as they finally start to listen to him and obey. If you remember last week's passage, God has given Israel directions about how to go towards the land. And he tells them three times at the beginning of chapter two as they pass by Esau's descendants and then the Moabites and then the Ammonites, leave them alone. Their land I have promised to them. That is not yours. Do not bother them. This is not your land. And it's almost as if God is testing them. Are you going to listen to me this time? Because if you remember what we've looked at before in Deuteronomy, the beginning was a recounting of how they did not do that. They did not listen to God's instructions about the land. God had promised them, go in, go into the land and I will be with you. And Israel wouldn't go in. They were scared of the giants. They were scared of the the people that were bigger than them and their fortified cities and they wouldn't go in. And so God says, okay, fine, turn around and go back into the wilderness. And in a mind-blowing turnabout, Israel decides, okay, now we're ready to go in. And God says, don't do that, I won't be with you. And Israel, who would not go in when God promised to be with them, now decides that now that he's not with them, let's go in. And it goes horribly. They are defeated immediately. And so all of that first part of chapter two that we looked at last week was a test. Can you listen? Will you listen to what I'm telling you to do? Can they pass by land that is good, that might be easier to take and go where God is telling them to go? Can they listen this time? And as our passage begins, we have learned, it turns out, they can. Israel listens and obeys and we see what God does for and through people who trust him. Look back at verse 24. Rise up, set on your journey and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. Notice who's doing the heavy lifting there. Behold, I have given into your hand. 
I have given into your hand, the Lord says. And that he's gonna, he says, I will begin in the next verse to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples. And that theme is gonna continue throughout the passage. Look down at verse 31. The Lord said to me, behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Verse 33, the Lord our God gave him over to us and we defeated him and his sons and all the people. Chapter three, verses two and three. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And then again in verse three, so the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also. Over and over the passage makes clear, God is the one giving the victory. You notice there's no military details here. We don't get any sense of how Israel did this or what the battles looked like because the emphasis is God gives the victory. As his people turn to him in obedience and in faith, even despite all their previous failure, God blesses them and gives them his grace. He keeps his promises to them. Point that out before we turn with the majority of our time to the issue of judgment in this passage because I want us to see what God does for people, even failing people. We've seen that in Deuteronomy, right? Israel are a failure in so many ways. What God does when people decide to listen, to turn and to obey him, what he does for and through and to them, as they turn to him in repentance and in faith. We have been in Deuteronomy long enough to know that Israel is far from perfect, but their God is faithful to his promises. If they will just trust him, if they will turn from their disobedience and follow him, they will experience blessing far beyond what they deserve. And they do. They get the land. But of course, this passage is not only about God blessing Israel. As we mentioned at the beginning, it is also a passage of judgment. Because God doesn't just deliver victory for his covenant people. He also delivers judgment on unrelenting evildoers. We see that throughout 226 through really the rest of our passage. The majority of the passage is given to the story of Israel's defeat of two Amorite kings. We have Sion and we have Og. And in both cases, God gives the kings over to Israel and they go in and destroy the city and its people. And I already read you verse 34. It's very explicit. They destroyed, they say, all the people. They left no survivors. And they do it in both places, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. Chapter three, verse six tells us. And if that hit you the way that it hit me the first time that I read this this week, on a surface level reading from our cultural position, this looks like the worst of colonialism the worst of genocide, the worst of ethnic cleansing. We can almost read this as if Israel has this manifest destiny and so they have to slaughter these poor indigenous people who stand in the way to take their land. And we could wonder, how could God do something like that? Why is God doing this to these poor people? Why is he letting his people get away with this? Do God's people just get to do this to whoever they want? This raises so many more questions than we have time to answer this morning. And I I hope even as we move through the rest of the passage, you'll forgive me. I'm going to overlook a lot of very interesting questions in this passage. I would love for us to be able to spend time on the hardening of Sion's heart and what's really going on there. What does that mean about his responsibility and and God's and all that? I'm just going to focus in on this question of the Amorites and their total destruction because it's the one that I struggled with the most this week. It was the one that hit me the hardest as I studied this passage. 
On the question of do God's people get to do this to whoever they want, the answer is no. God is very explicit in Deuteronomy chapter seven, just a few chapters from now, verse one, about who Israel is allowed to devote to destruction. And it's limited to seven nations, these seven nations in Canaan. And lest we think it's because Israel's so great and they just deserve this land, God in Deuteronomy chapter nine is very explicit about why Israel is allowed to do this to these specific nations, including the Amorites in our passage. It's not because Israel is awesome and they deserve the land. Listen to what God says in Deuteronomy chapter nine, verse four. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. As we return to that initial question of of why is God letting his people do this to these poor people? It turns out the Amorites are not poor and innocent people. In fact, we know from earlier in the scriptures that the judgment of the Amorites has been a long time coming. All the way back in Genesis 15, when God made his covenant promises to Abram, the promises that set this whole Israel project in motion, there was this cryptic little bit of foreshadowing. Let me just read Genesis 15, 12 through 16 for you. It's that famous covenant-making scene that God has with Abraham. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And here's the cryptic bit. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God tells Abram, as he's making the covenant promises that would establish the nation of Israel, your offspring are gonna be servants in Egypt. They'll be there for 400 years before they can go into the land I'm giving them. And why are they gonna have to wait 400 years? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean, the iniquity of the Amorites? It refers to their sin. God is giving the Amorites 400 years. And implicitly what we're, I think, to infer there is that he is giving them 400 years to stop, to stop their sin or to fill it up, to fill it up, to bring it to completion to the point where God will say, enough. What was the iniquity of the Amorites? What kind of people were these? In in Leviticus 18, as God's giving Israel laws, he starts saying things, he gives them all these laws about sexual practices. And he also includes things like don't practice child sacrifice. And he tells them that part of the reason that he gives for telling them don't sacrifice your children is because the people in the land, people like the Amorites were doing exactly that. God says, do not be like that. Do not kill your children. Do not give in to sexual depravity. The picture painted of the Amorites is one of absolute degradation and brutality. 
child sacrifice, sexual depravity, and more. And God had let this go on for hundreds of years, giving them chance after chance to repent, to turn. They've even had warning that Israel's coming. Even in this passage, Moses attempts a peaceful passage, does he not? Until finally God says, no more. This wickedness has to stop. And he pours out his judgment on them. If you were like me, it is tempting to think, okay, but I understand that. But what about the innocent people among the Amorites? I mean, what about the ones who, who might have turned? Did all of them have a chance to turn to God? I mean, did everyone deserve to die? What about the innocent ones? And first, we have to remember what the Bible teaches us elsewhere, that there are no innocent people. Romans 3 tells us none are righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God in their flesh. In Psalm 51, verse 5, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From the womb, David says, I was sinful. And so then my heart goes to, okay, yes, we're all sinners, but, but what about grace? What about those who would turn from their sin? I mean, isn't the Bible full of examples? I mean, think about it. They're full of examples of God delivering great sinners from their sin. Even people who are a part of Israel's enemies. And think of Rahab, the prostitute in Joshua. She's going to spare the spies. Her and her whole family are going to be delivered. Or think about the book of Jonah, the people of Nineveh. In Jonah 3.10, we're told that after the people of Nineveh repent and turn to God, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. If you remember the book of Jonah, in fact, like that's, that's Jonah's entire complaint against God. It's the whole reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. The whole reason he ends up in the belly of the fish. He says, I know what's gonna happen. They are our enemies. I know you, God. I'm gonna go and preach. And if they repent, you're gonna let them off the hook. You just love being slow to anger. You love doing that whole abounding and steadfast love thing. You are gonna let them off the hook. I don't wanna go. I want you to judge them. So we know that God does this, that God will relent for those who will repent. So to bring it back to our passage, it leaves us wondering, why didn't God do that with the Amorites who might have repented? And I think the answer we are to infer is that because there were not any. This is wickedness as far as it goes. There were not any. Reminded of the story in Genesis 18 where, where God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom. Do you remember the story? Abraham's horrified. Abraham's horrified by it. He says, Lord, are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people? You're just going to wipe them out with all the innocent people? And Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He says, God, you can't do that. And the Lord says, okay, if there are 50 righteous people, I'll spare the whole city for their sake. And Abraham, do you remember this? Abraham starts haggling. He starts saying, okay, okay, so, I mean, you said 50, but what if there are 40? And then he keeps going, right? Every time the Lord says yes, he, he keeps going. He keeps working the Lord down and he gets him down to 10. He says, Lord, forgive me, but what if there are 10 righteous people? Will you wipe them away? 
with the unrighteous. And the Lord says, okay, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And what happens? The Lord destroys the city because there are not 10 righteous people in Sodom. Abraham had negotiated with God thinking surely there must be a few. And what he learns is Abraham, it is worse than you think. It is worse than you think. I think as we consider the destruction of the Amorites this morning, one of the possibilities we have to consider is that it is worse than we think. Sin in general, but theirs particularly. It is worse than we think. That hundreds of years of child sacrifice and sexual depravity and evil and injustice beyond our ability to measure brought them to a point as a people where it was right for God to say enough. Enough. To every single one of you. I think of the great evil that our world saw in the last century during the Holocaust. When you think about the evil that Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich were able to pull off in a little over a decade through their concentration camps, it's staggering. Millions, millions of people that were killed in, in such a short amount of time. But imagine for a moment with me if they had won. What if the Germans had won? What if they had been allowed to continue down that path of eugenics, expanding the concentration camps unchecked for 400 years? What would that toll look like? What would justice look like? Yale theologian Miroslav Volf is uh, from Yugoslavia, a place where a homeland where thousands were killed and millions were displaced. And through his homeland's experience of war and suffering, he wrote, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Because he loves this world, because he loves its image bearers, those who choose for generation after generation to degrade the image of God in fellow human beings, who continue to rebel against the God of heaven and earth, will finally find God's patience has come to an end. He is slow to anger, but he will get there. And I just, I want to say for those of us for whom who make, that makes us nervous or causes us distress, there are many people the world over for whom that is a great lifeline and hope. That there is a God who will do justice. Who sees their oppression. Who sees the suffering and the sin that it has been inflicted upon them. And will not be silent and will not be inactive. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. As we close this morning, I know all of your questions are not answered or satisfied, and mine are not either. Where does that leave us? As I started this morning, I said that all scripture points to Jesus. How does this one point to him? 
Earlier I said there are no innocent people. I, I should actually caveat that. There has been one. There has been one innocent person, the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who lived a life of perfect obedience and then went to the cross. The only one who has ever experienced God's wrath who could say, I did not deserve any of this and who did it willingly for the joy who was set before him. You and me. And he did it because the heavenly father sent him to do it. He who did not withhold his son, but graciously gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him give us all things? And Jesus desired to do that, that he might save us. And so as we wrestle with this passage, we are reminded that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but he will not let sin and evil and injustice go unchecked forever. But the good news for those of us who are sinners, who fear, but what, what about me? Is this gonna happen to me? The answer to that is no, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ because it happened to him. That he drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf and on mine. He took what we deserved that we might not die but live. And so this morning, the opportunity before us is to turn again to him. The judge of all the Lord will do what is right. He is a father who rather than pouring out his wrath on you has taken it upon himself and the Godhead in his son. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you are safe. And if you have not believed on Jesus yet, can I invite you there is a day coming. There's a day coming when the judge of all the earth will do what is right. He has been slow to anger when he will finally pour out justice. What will happen to you? His offer to you now is turn. If you will listen to him, if you will turn to his son, there is salvation for you today. Please come. Please come and believe on the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us as we turn to the Lord's table. Father, we confess that we do not know, even as we have some of these intellectual answers, we do not know what to do with your word that tells us hard things. I pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord. Would you remind us that you are good and holy and true? And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have taken what we deserved and what you never did, that you willingly took it because you loved us. I pray as we come to the Lord's table that you would remind us again of your great affection. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.